Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Root and Roots show on blogtalkradio.com. Now here's your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you the best in music, information, and history. Well, good evening, everyone. This is Greg Rashid, the host of the Root and Roots show. We heard most Fridays at uh, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and also on Saturdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time where we play the best in roots music from blues, gospel, jazz, hip-hop, soul, world, country. We do it here on the Root and Roots Show. And plus we get to the rooted issues. And tonight we're doing the roots of old-time radio. And I'm going to start off by playing a little bit of a show that we're featuring tonight. This is the great Gildersleeve. And for a lot of you, including myself, this is before our time, but I love old-time radio. So we're just going to play a little bit of this and have our guest on here first. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show. And that was a snippet of the show, and I think we had a little technical problem. I don't think anyone heard the beginning, so if you didn't, this is Greg Rashid, and I'm the host of the Root and Root Show. We heard every most Fridays from six six p.m. in the Eastern Standard Time, and also Saturdays at six p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I don't think anyone heard out there. And I have to explain something. I just got a new computer, and I think it knocked me off. It's not used to using Blog Talk, so hopefully everything is all right now. And I want to welcome my guest on the program. I hope he's on there. Uh, Claire Schultz, he served as the archive director at the Museum of Broadcast Communications, is the author of two books and numerous articles about old-time radio and vintage films. He lives in Wisconsin, and the book that I'm talking about, he is the author of the new one is Tuning in the Great Gildersleeve, the episodes and cast of radio's first spinoff show, 1941 and 1957. Are you there, Claire? I am here. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Thank you. And I, you know, I got, I'm trying to work a new system here. I should, have, you know, you supposed to uh, test it. And I said no, I'm just going to run with this since it's brand new. But anyway, we got you loud and clear. And just tell us, you know, the great. You know, I really like this book, and I have to say. I from time to time I will do shows on here about old time radio because I just love old time radio and I'm talking about from the 30s in particular the 40s and the through the mid 50s and I just want you you know I was fascinated with this book about the Great Gildersleeve because you you know the title says the first radio's first spinoff show and just 
talk a little bit about what it was spun off from, because a lot of listeners don't know it, and you can call in here at 424-675-8315. Hello? Harold Perry had been on Fipper McGee and Molly for a number of years, and Starting in 1939, he actually took on the character of Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve. And as the show went on, Don Quinn, who was the the writer, really liked the sparring matches between Fibber and Gildersleeve, and so he would save, in most cases, the third act, uh, setting up uh, fireworks between Fibber and Gildersleeve because they both had short tempers, and it turned out that he became one of the most popular characters on the show. And so in the spring of 1941, in May, they did a audition show. And Johnson's Wax, which was the sponsor of Fibber McGee and Molly, actually sponsored that audition show. And the thinking was maybe a show featuring Gildersleeve would be a summer replacement for Fibber, McGee, and Molly in that summer right. of 1941. It turned out that Johnson's Wax decided to go with a program called Haphazard, but Kraft liked the idea of a show starring Gildersleeve. So starting in August of 1941, Gildy left the Fibber, McGee, and Molly show, and as a matter of fact, the show begins with him on a train in Wistful Vista, the home of Fibber McGee and Molly, going to Summerfield to take over the estate of his niece and nephew. And it turns out that he's really saying goodbye to Wistful Vista and Fibber McGee and Molly, even though he does come back occasionally. And he took off on his own show, and uh, it really became radio's um, first spinoff. And I think a spinoff can really be defined as one in which a secondary character on one program becomes the leading character on his or her own show. And it turns out that, really, the show was so popular that it ran to 1957, almost the end of the old-time radio era. So uh, it really was a wise move uh, for Harold Perry to leave from that show to his own show. In spinoff shows, I should tell my listeners too. You, you know, this you got to keep in mind. This is the first one, and we're talking about now in today. You know, in the 21st century, you have spinoffs of the show. Let's say CSI. There's so many CSIs now, and the characters kind of intermingle from Vegas to New York to you know L.A., Miami. That's a spinoff. Um, some of you may remember All in the Family, where Characters on there, Maude, the Jeffersons, they got their own shows. Those were spinoffs. Uh, Andy Griffith's show, off the top of my head. Uh, Gomer Powell was on there. He had his own show. So, that you know, that's what we're talking about. And this is the first of that type, the actual spinoff of a character. And what I'm going to do right now, Claire, I'm going to play the beginning of uh, The Great Gildersleeve so people can get an idea of what we're talking about because I don't think they heard the the opening of the show. So let's hear a little bit of the opening of The Great Gildersleeve on the Root and Root Show. 
Pap Set presents The Great Gildersleeve. <laughs> the makers of Pap Set present each week at this time Harold Perry as The Great Gildersleeve, written by John Whedon. We'll hear from the great Gildersleeve in just a moment. But first, are uh, some of the foods you usually serve hard to get these days? Well, don't think that means your meals have to be monotonous, because there's a plentiful food that gives appetizing variety to menus in a hundred different ways and is mighty easy to use, too. I'm talking about Pap's Et, the delicious golden cheese food that comes in the familiar round package. It spreads easily to make tasty new. Pap's Set presents yeah. The Great Gildersleeve. <laughs> yeah. I thought I'd throw in a little commercial there, but Claire, I want you to talk about um, that laugh and all, because that was one of the main things of Harold Perry. And talk a little more about Harold Perry, too, playing the role of The Great Gildersleeve. Yes. Uh, that sometimes is referred to as the, the dirty laugh of, of Harold Perry. And that became his trademark, at least through June of 1948, on The Great Gildersleeve and opening the show. Uh, after that, he, he dropped that. But Gildy was larger than life. And uh, Harold Perry uh, was a good-sized man, as anybody can see. You've got the cover of the book probably in front of you there. Um, he was a good-sized man, and the title of the series really is somewhat ironic in that he really wasn't, the character of Gildersleeve really wasn't that great. Uh, he became water commissioner uh, of Summerfield, but he knew very little about the water commissioner's job. And he was indolent and capricious and meddlesome and arbitrary and gullible. All those things that were in the Fibber show he brought over and he was a procrastinator, and he could be a hypocrite at times, and a four-flusher, and a philanderer, a perpetual blunderer. But somehow those, that combination of imperfections, because Harold Perry made Gildy such a lovable character, it got rolled into a portly package of, of moonstruck bungler that, that, we, that we really came to, to love. And as a matter of fact, one of his sweethearts and one episode told him i like you because you're human and as a matter of fact my original title for the book that i submitted to mcfarland was the human comedy the great gildersleeve but they decided to change it to tuning in the great gildersleeve uh he really was a a human character uh just like uh fibber was and a number of other characters were and we emphasized with them because they were a flawed characters and and maybe that's what they made them so amusing you can imagine if jack benny was a character who was not vain and not a tightwad and uh, not concerned about uh, his age what a dull character he would have been and gildy was certainly a lively character one of the changes that did come about as the show went on was he had to become a little more responsible uh, as guardian of Leroy and Marjorie, and he became a little more involved in, in their uh, affairs. 
and the things that they were doing in school. And so I think another landmark for this series, besides being the, the first spinoff, is that if you really want to consider it, even though he wasn't the parent of Leroy and Marjorie, this could really be considered the forerunner of single-parent comedies. Uh, he, was, he, was, he wasn't a bachelor father. He was a, kind of a bachelor uncle which was uh, the best he could do in that particular situation because he was a perpetual ladies' man. He got to the altar close twice, once in 43 and once in 44, but having him as a bachelor and a ladies' man really was the best premise for the show because it allowed him to, uh, again, be capricious and unpredictable from week to week. And that's what he certainly was on the show. And the funny thing is, um, the show, you know, reading the book, I realized the show was not, it was rarely ranked in the top 20 of shows, but it was very popular. And the popularity, I would say, based on the fact that it lasted that long, and also the fact that, you know, there were, mo- it was, you know, there were four movies made from the show. And, that, yeah. you know, and that's fascinating because a lot of the, Radio shows of that era didn't get a chance to have their characters featured in movies, but there were four great Gildersleeve movies. And talk talk a little bit about those movies. Yes, there were four uh, Gildersleeve films made. Uh, unfortunately, the real disadvantage in them in is that they didn't bring over the other characters uh, from well, the... Well, I'm glad you said that. Before you go on, talk about in particular... There's one character, Leroy. I want you to talk about him because a lot of folks will know the voice when I play the whole um, Great Gildersleeve after we have our interview. They'll know that voice, but talk about him because he definitely could not, he was not a 13 or 12-year-old little boy. Talk a little bit about him. That's right. Uh, Walter Tetley was one of radio's best character actors. Um, He was... On the Phil Harris Alice Faye show, he was the perpetual wise guy, the the man who could always come back with the comeback. And matter of fact, he he has a little bit of the wise guy in him in a number of the episodes. Some of his favorite catchphrases, whenever Gildy would say something that Leroy had a hard time believing, he would say, "Are you kidding?" And when Gildersleeve would act rather uh, unpredictable, he would say, "What a character!" and Walter Tetley was in his 40s uh, at the time he was performing in the Phil Harris, Alice Faye show, and on the great Gildersleeve. Uh, apparently it was some hormonal uh, imbalance as, as a youngster where he retained uh, a younger voice, even though his, his body was not necessarily that of what we might consider a midget or a dwarf, his his voice, like Dick Beals and some other uh, actors who uh, were in their mid-30s and 40s, they retained that youthful uh, tenor in their voice. So obviously he couldn't, because of the way he looked, uh, perform as Leroy in the films. But uh, unfortunately, the films weren't really based on the interplay between the characters, between Gildersleeve and Judge Hooker and his romances. It was more trying to get a a popular vehicle on radio onto the screen and maybe 
attract some viewers that way. There were four uh, movies made in 42, 43, and 44. The Great Gildersleeve, Gildersleeve's Bad Day, Gildersleeve on Broadway, and Gildersleeve's Ghost. And after that one, they gave up the ghost because um, it, they really were getting diminishing returns uh, with those right. particular uh, films. It's, it's funny, uh, as you, you know, as you were talking about Walter, I'm looking at pictures, and I was looking at the pictures of him in the book. It seemed like in the publicity pictures, they tried to make this man look like a, at least a teenager, the way he's dressed in some of the pictures, but you can obviously tell this is a grown man. Yes, yes, that is that is true, and that's that's what really disqualified him from uh, television appearances and uh, movie appearances is because he didn't look like a seventh grader. And through most of the years, they tried to keep him in in seventh grade, and Walter Tetley was a a real factor on a number of programs. And you could tell his voice, as you probably have, by listening to various old-time radio shows. As soon as you hear his voice, you know that that's Walter Tetley. He was born in and 1950s. I grew up on it. Right. And now, he later on in the 60s, he does another voice that a lot of people know him for. Yes, if they're a, if they're a television watcher, they would probably recognize his voice. In particular, on a cartoon, um, Peabody and Sherman, he was, a, he was Sherman. He was a little boy of the dog, Mr. Peabody. Yes, and on the Bullwinkle show. Right, and by that time and he's approaching... 50, but he's still playing the role of a little boy. That's right. That's right. And it's it's one of those, I guess, if you could call it that way, an advantage of radio is that you really didn't have to see um, who was performing. We imagined him as a as a seventh grader. Now, Louise Erickson, right. when she took the role, she was 17, so she sounded like a 17-year-old, and she looked like a 17-year-old. And when she appeared in a film called meet Miss Bobby Soxer, she looked like a Bobby Soxer. But the original um, niece was in her 30s, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. That's right. And that was Lorene Tuttle, who was a very accurate right. uh, radio actress. And they kept writing, as Lorene said in some interviews, they kept writing the character younger. And so at age 36, she was a little long in the tooth to be playing a 16, 17-year-old. And uh, so she had no shortage of roles that she could go on to uh, in other radio shows, but Louise Erickson really fit the park so well. And incidentally, she is the only cast member still alive. Oh, that's fascinating. And I want to talk about another cast member because, you know, we're talking about the late 30s, 40s, and 50s, and this cast member was the only one to appear with uh, Harold Perry in the movies. And I'm talking about Lillian Randolph. And talk about her, because back then you're talking about the Jim Crow era segregation for African Americans and the roles on radio, which were far and few between. She had a role where she actually played a maid, but her, unlike the maid on 
Fibber McGee and Molly and some other shows, she was an integral part of the show and not something, she wasn't a buffoon or a stereotype. And talk a little bit about her. Exactly. Uh, I think you could put another first on this series is that she became the first black woman to be a regular cast member on a primetime network series. And she was really more than a domestic. She really was more like a mother figure to Leroy and Marjorie. The children looked up to her for guidance, and she often had to talk sternly to them, like when they were going, going in to snitch some food or something like that, or when she was baking a cake and they came in quickly running, she, she'd yell at them and say, no, no, I'm baking a cake. You'll, you'll have it drop." Even occasionally, she would yell at uh, Gildersleeve also. Right. Even occasionally to Gildersleeve, she would say, uh, you're not, you know, this isn't the right way to go. She was a strong female presence in the home. And Lillian Randolph had a strong presence on the show. Outside of Harold Perry, no one sang more frequently on the program than she did. It became a Christmas tradition for her to sing the Coventry Carol and later on for her to sing an Easter song uh, as well. And she was the only character to appear on the radio show, in the Gildersleeve movies, and on the Gildersleeve syndicated television show. So she really had a strong presence on the great Gildersleeve through all those years. You know, it's amazing. You know, some of my listeners, you can call in at 424-675-8315. I'm talking to Claire Schultz, the author of the book, tuning in the great Gildersleeve episodes and cast of radio's first spinoff show, 1941-1957. It's on McFarland Press. It's a fascinating book. You know, it's very, you know, it gets all, you listen to, you had to listen, you listen to every show. I mean, you got details of every show in here. That is, that's correct. There's over 550 episodes. And one of the nagging issues that I think had been bothering a number of Gildersleeve fans is that from 1942 to 1945, a number of the episodes are not extant in recorded form. For instance, during the 43-44 season, only 26 of the 44 episodes are in circulation. So one of the advantages in living in Wisconsin is that at the Wisconsin State Historical Society in Madison, Kraft and their sponsors microfilmed the scripts from 41 era to the end of the Kraft sponsorship in 54. And so I was able to go to the society there, take out these microfilm reels, and go through and read all the scripts and then be able to summarize the scripts, tell who was in the cast, tell who the writers were, and perhaps provide some comments from the script. And so that allows... the people who were wondering what happened during some of those episodes to at least know by way of a repetition of what happened in the script, at least maybe if there was a missing character or a character who appeared at one time and never appeared again, maybe wonder why that particular person dropped out of the series. 
So it did involve a lot of uh, research, and one of the things that impressed me as I was listening to the shows is the vast number of allusions that appear in the episodes. Over 100 episodes have allusions that are sometimes from great works of literature, but sometimes they come from the Bible, and sometimes they come from poets like Robert Service and Edgar Guest. And And I didn't realize that until I actually, you know, reading the book and then listening to some of the shows again, it's like, well, that's right. And And I think some of that got past a lot of the audience. Right, And, and that's why I think listeners at the time recognized and the citations as as pertinent quotes of note, but because so often they weren't attributed, a character wouldn't say, well, as so-and-so said, they would just say uh, something uh, to the effect of render unto Caesar, or somebody might say procrastination is the thief of time, or the quality of mercy is not strain, or watchman, what of the night? And... For today's listeners, because they have the time to listen to them as many times as they want to, I put the illusion in there so when they go over and listen to it again, they'll have a greater appreciation um, for the show and the craft of the writers. Uh, it, it even extended to the to the music. You probably uh, have noted in my homage to Jack Meekin, uh, who took over as musical director, that he would very often use as bridges from one part of the program to another strains from songs that were popular at the time. When money was tight, he'd play a little bit from Brother, Can You Spare a Dime? Right. When Gildersleeve and his neighbor was heading for a fight, he'd play a little bit from Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? Or he'd play other songs like the Prisoner Song or Silver Threads Among the Gold. Songs like that that weren't mentioned in the script. And my fear is that as we go farther into the 21st century and more people from that era pass away, they won't be able to recognize those melodies. I can recognize them because I listen to a lot of 1930s and 40s music. But in 20 years or so, when I'm gone and other people are gone, they won't recognize them. And that's why I tried to indicate that the people who can no longer name that tune will appreciate that this was a show that not only had illusions, but it was a total package of entertainment. The musical director, the writers, it came wrapped with caring hands. And From it's the something that, you know, the great Gildersleeve right. to an audience that have, they hoped appreciated it. Right, and I have to say, you know, I started listening to old time radio when I was in the '60s, when I was a kid, and listening to it now, and I've just continued to listen to old time radio, and now that I've had my own show for many years, both here on Blog Talk and other stations, actually being able to play it from time to time, a show like the Great Gildersleeve is. It's still relevant. It's relevant. It's not old and dated. Exactly. You can and put the situations right as compared to, and I have to say this with something like Fibber McGee and Molly, where they really get into the war and they get, you know, there's some things they're talking about that don't 
wouldn't make sense to anyone in the 21st century. The, the folks that wrote the scripts for the Great Gildersleeve, you can tell, you know, they had no idea that they, you know these things were going to last forever, but they made it in a way that it just fits into any time period. You're you're accurate uh, in that. I I sometimes think that one of the things that attracted me to the Great Gildersleeve years ago when I started to listen to it is that when I heard a number of those episodes, I actually got an ache in my heart because if you think of the word nostalgia, nostalgia means a return home and pain, a pain to return home. And I grew up in a small town, and when I think about those episodes – and because you've listened to a number of the episodes yourself, you realize how we get a great glimpse of a small town, the hay rides that they would go on. They'd have picnics, the Halloween parties when they'd go bobbing for apples, sleigh rides, going to double features at a theater, uh, gathering around the piano at Christmas time to sing carols. Gildy would take a walk downtown to drop in at the barber shop, or he would just stop over at, PV, at PV's pharmacy at the drugstore, or even spending a leisurely summer afternoon or evening, like tonight, sitting on the front porch, just sitting swinging with your sweetheart. Those are things that never age. Right. In fact, the show I'm about to play after we uh, conclude this interview is the fishing trip from uh, August of 1942. And a lot of folks can relate to fishing. There's nothing in there that says, you know, well, this is 42, the way they're fishing is, is fishing. It's a, you know, that's what it is. That's what make that, makes that show really timeless, the way they did it. Now, I don't really want to talk, you know, because we're talking about the glory days of the Gildersleeve show. You know, you do mention when Harold Perry leaves. You know, let's talk very briefly about the last years of Gildersleeve when they get a new actor to play the role. Okay. In the late 40s, Jack Benny, Red Skelton, Edgar Bergen, Charlie McCarthy, and Amos and Andy all moved from NBC to CBS. Harold Perry wanted to do the same thing. He wanted to move Gildersleeve from NBC to CBS, so he made an agreement that he wanted to go. to CBS. Unfortunately, he didn't own the show. Kraft owned the show, and Kraft would not let him take the great Gildersleeve to CBS. They said, if you want to go to CBS, fine. So Harold Perry went and from 1950 to 51, started a show called The Harold Perry Show, which became Honest Harold after a little while. And I have to say that Kraft show was needed like, a, a substitute. Right, and I have to say, uh, Claire, that that show to me was the ones I've heard are just awful. They are really bad. Far, far from good. Let's put it that way. That's far right. from good. <laughs> well, anyway, they they had to come up with uh, a substitute, and so they came up with uh, Willard Waterman, and Willard Waterman was a, a character actor. Uh, performing on many shows. Uh, he was on Armis Brooks. He was on The Whistler, Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, all over the place. And so he came on to take the, the part of the great Gildersleeve. And 
he was really uh, being dressed in, in borrowed robes. You're a fan of old-time radio, so I ask you to try and try and rem- imagine another actor other than Ed Gardner playing Archie on Duffy's Tavern or somebody oh, other yeah, than William Bendix old. playing Chester Riley on The Life of Riley. Both Gardner and Bendix brought perfect voice quality and delivery to the role. Uh, the part of a larger-than-life blowhard was a natural one for Harold Perry because the character had been built around his blustery persona on Fibber McGee and Molly. Willard Waterman was more of a character actor, and he did the best he could, and he tried to to match some of... He sounds like Harold Perry in some instances, but he doesn't do the nuances. That's right, the nuances that... That that I try to capture in the in the introduction, the the oofs and the umps and the and the way that Harold Perry could uh, just blow off steam uh, was not part of of Waterman's uh, repertoire. So he did the best he could, um, but and it's uh, funny because when you listen to Waterman, whereas Harold Perry, he's trying to be this. You know, as we were talking about earlier, he's a bachelor, so he's chasing every woman, and he's trying to be romantic in his own way. Waterman, to me, comes off as just lecherous. There's a whole different style with him. And the lines and all, how he's... Go ahead. Go ahead. You go ahead. Um, he, he, he doesn't have the the all-around character of Gildersleeve. One other thing you'll notice is if you listen to a number of the Waterman episodes, his exposure at the office virtually disappears. He doesn't go to the office anymore. And that was part of the the Gildersleeve character is the lackadaisical behavior at the office and the trouble he would get in there with his secretary and with the boss. But that pretty much became uh, passe, and Marjorie became more uh, important in the as the show went on, as she got married and had children, and the focus became more on Gildersleeve's relationship and meddling with his daughter and son-in-law and their twins. And it became a little bit more of a domestic comedy, but it lost considerably when Harold right. Perry left the show. That's it. And listeners, again, I want to let you know that we're about to conclude this interview, but the book, you know, some of you may not have listened to old-time radio before, and I'm about to play The Guild of Sleeve in a minute, but if you're interested, this is a great book, tuning in The Great Guild of Sleeve, the episodes and cast of radio's first spinoff show, 1941-1957, by Claire Schultz, who's on the line right now. And Claire, what do you hope to accomplish with the book, besides leaving this great historical piece, what do you hope someone who doesn't know anything about old-time radio, what do you hope they get out of it by reading the book, besides just actually going and listening to the show? I suppose if a little bit like Camelot, that for one shining moment there was uh, such a place like, like Camelot. There was such a place like Summerfield. I... I sometimes think when I talk about uh, it being the human comedy, I think even today we want to go back and back again to the great Gildersleeve 
each time we listen to it is like a visit to that place we called home, and it's a chance to meet one more time those very human people that we knew, and I hope there will still be people like that in years to come. You know, Thornton Wilder may have called it Grover's Corners in his famous play, but many of us have come to think of Summerfield as our town. And I hope that when people listen to the series and read the book, they'll say, Summerfield is my town, or as Frank Sinatra put it, my kind of town. That, that sums it up. And so, Claire, I just thank you for being on here. And are you planning on writing another book? Like not another at radio this time. Show? Uh, right. Not at this time. I may be working on another one uh, down the line. But as you can imagine, uh, just listening to 554 shows alone oh, would do takes up a, <laughs> a long time, much less than doing research and traveling to How many years? libraries. How many years? How many years did it take you to get the book together and listen to everything? Probably from start to finish, probably two and a half years. And, well, of course, Trevor McGee and Molly, um, if you don't have a copy right. of that book, I'll certainly be willing to, to send you a copy of that because it's the very same type of book in that I go through all the episodes with comments, and that one took a couple years as well. Uh, I can so, imagine. Uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to read that one also. All right. But Claire, so I just want to thank you. If anyone wants to contact you, do you have a website? I I I have a blog and I do have a a email address and I can give both of those if you'd like me to. Yeah, sure. All right. My email address is a takeoff on Fibber McGee and Molly's address. They're they lived at seventy nine Wistful Vista. My email address is Wistful W I S T F U L seven nine V I S T A at Hotmail dot com and my blog where I write about old time radio and a number of other uh, subjects is Roth Thoughts W R O U G H T T H O U G H T S dot WordPress dot com. I'm looking forward. I know a lot of folks will be looking forward to going on those sites and talking to you further. And Claire, I just want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show this evening. You've written a great book, and I can hear the love you have for Old Time Radio. And just thank you so much for being on this evening. Thank you for having me. Goodbye. All right. You take care. And again, that was Claire Schultz, and the name of the book is Tuning In. Tuning in the Great Gildersleeve, and it's on McFarlane Press. I hope you enjoyed that interview. And like I said, from time to time, I will do old-time radio because I'm a radio guy, and I just like knowing what happened in the past to understand the future. And what I'm going to do right now, I'm going to play the fishing trip from the Great Gildersleeve. Hopefully, this new computer will let me do it, so let's hear that on the Root and Root Show. Pap Set presents The Great Gildersleeve. <laughs> the makers of Pap Set present each week at this time Harold Perry as The Great Gildersleeve, written by John Whedon. We'll 
We'll hear from the great Gildersleeve in just a moment. But first, are uh, some of the foods you usually serve hard to get these days? Well, don't think that means your meals have to be monotonous, because there's a plentiful food that gives appetizing variety to menus in a hundred different ways and is mighty easy to use, too. I'm talking about Pabst Et, the delicious golden cheese food that comes in the familiar round package. It spreads easily to make tasty, nutritious sandwiches. Pabst Et also slices neatly to serve with apple pie or fruit. And it's no trick at all to make smooth cheese sauces with Pabst Et to pour over hot vegetables, hard-cooked eggs, fish, or chicken dishes. Yes, and Pabst Et makes smooth, tempting rarebits, light, fluffy souffles. And it's a sure hit melted on toast in the broiler. By all in all, you could count at least 100 different ways to turn everyday foods into exciting treats with Pabstet. Another thing, Pabstet is easy to digest, too, and wholesome and nourishing, a favorite with the youngsters. So serve Pabstet often. Ask your grocer for Pabstet tomorrow. You'll recognize it by its distinctive round flat package. Remember, it's Pabstet. The delicious golden cheese food of a hundred uses. And now, let's join our friend, the great Gildersleeve, who seems to have been overdoing a bit lately. His legal counsel, Judge Hooker, has persuaded him to drop in on Doc Pettibone for a checkup. And while the judge stands by... The good doctor goes over the great man with a stethoscope. You know, doctor, this is a lot of nonsense. I feel fine. Oh, quiet, please, Mr. Gildersleeve. I want to listen to that heart of yours. Yeah, we take you now to Gildersleeve's heart. <laughs> take it away, doc. Yes, Mr. What is it? Why do you look like that? What is it, Doc? What have you found? Don't tell me you found a heart. <laughs> you keep out of this, Hooker. This is serious. I'd like you to listen to this, Judge. Put this stethoscope on. That's right. Now hold the other end up to his chest. <laughs> stand still. It tickles. Well, stand still. There. Now listen. What do you hear? Sort of a rustling noise. Sort of a what? Sounds like a troop of boy scouts coming through the underbrush. <laughs> oh, no, no, that's the hair on his chest. <laughs> You're in the wrong place. Hold it lower. Hold it still. Hold Gildersleeve still. Oh, cut that out, Hooker. I can't stand the suspense. Uh, Doc, Doc, am I, am I going to die? No, no, now take it easy. Uh, don't spare me, Doc. I'm a sick man. I know it. Don't try to fool me. If my time is up, I want you to tell me. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, Mr. Gildersleeve, but you are not going to die. No? No. <laughs> Did you hear that, Hooker? You're not going to die, but with that blood pressure of yours, if you don't do what I tell you, you're going to blow up. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I'll do it, Doctor. I'll do anything you say. You name it, and I'll do it. Well, I want you to get some rest. Uh, rest, yeah. Fly low. Take it easy. Above all, don't get excited. Don't get excited. Maybe you ought to go away for a few days. That's what I keep telling him. Go away. Go away. <laughs> Listen, you meddlesome old goat. Well, the judge is right. Yeah. Why don't you close up the house and take the kids and go fishing? Say, you know, I haven't been fishing in 20 years. Best thing in the world for the nerves, isn't it, Doc? Nothing like it. Yes, sir. I used to be quite a flycaster in my day. A regular Isaac Walpole. 
Well, then the place for you is Lake Hekmatak. Heck- you can rent a little cabin up there and jump. Are there any fish? Are there any fish? You know that big trout that hangs over the sideboard in my dining room? Yes. Lake Hekmatak. Yes. Say, one of those wouldn't look bad in my den. By George, I'll do it. I'll take Marjorie and Leroy, and we'll start the first thing in the morning. Come on, Judge. <laughs> Mr. Gildersleeve, just a minute. Yes? There's one more thing. If What's that, Doc? Five dollars, please. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Five dollars. Marjorie! Where is everybody? Leroy, you get right out of my kitchen. You've gone and messed up every pot and bottle I got. Look at that floor. Hey, good evening, Bertie. Evening, Miss Gilsey. My, something smells mighty good. It smells all right, but it ain't good. Leroy, what's going on here? What on earth are you doing with all those bottles? Just making a little root beer. It, a little root beer? He's made 14 gallons. Well, that's how much it makes. You can see for yourself, Unc. It says here on the bottle, this extract is sufficient to make 14 gallons of genuine root beer. Don't you think you're getting into this thing a little deep, Leroy? 14 gallons. That's an awful lot of burps. Yeah, and he's used up... <laughs> He's used up every bottle and cork I got, and the wash tub's still half full. Wash tub? Oh, you don't understand, Uncle Mort. I'm not going to drink it. I'm going to sell it. Leroy, did you ever hear of the Pure Food and Drug Act? No. Well, you will. <laughs> and you're going to hear the riot act if you don't get that stuff out of Bertie's kitchen. Where's Marjorie, Bertie? She's out back, Mr. Gilsleeve. She's been laying in a hammer crying her eyes out. Crying? Say, we'll have to see about this. Yeah, nothing but trouble in this house. The doctor's right. I've got to get out of here. You too, Leroy. Come on. You ought to know better than to muss up. Why, Marjorie? What's the matter, honey? Nothing. It's Doug. He was supposed to take her to the movies tonight, and he's standing her up. He is not. I'm standing him up. Huh? Wait a minute. Let me get this thing straight. He stood me up last night, so... So I'm standing him up tonight. Well, darling, if you're standing him up, what are you crying about? <laughs> it's Doug who should feel badly. I know. But he doesn't. <laughs> He's going to take that Helen Gibson out. Well, you told him to take her out. I heard you. Yes, but he's going to do it. <laughs> oh, that's women for you. Take my advice. I'll never have anything to do with it. Yes, all right. Lisa. Take it from me. The more you do for them, the less they appreciate I know, I know. Read them rough and tell them nothing. That's my method. Take my advice. Leroy, why don't you start a column? You tend to your root beer and lay off your sister. Now, Marjorie, I wouldn't waste any tears on a fellow like Doug. He's nothing don't but... Don't you dare say anything against Doug. <laughs> Stick around, Leroy. I may need you after all. Remember, Marjorie... There's better fish than duck. He's right in Lake Hackmatack. Say, how'd you like to go to Hackmatack for a couple of weeks, huh? We'll rent a little camp, and we'll do nothing but lie around in the sun all day and fish. What do you say? Fish? Yippee! If I wasn't asking you, Leroy, it Marjorie? Well, if there's going to be any fishing, there's one thing I'd like to know first. Oh, what's that? Who cleans the fish? Uh, yes, there is that. <laughs> Leroy, you're getting to be a big boy now. What's the matter with you cleaning the fish, Unc? Uh... Well, I'll tell you. Funny thing about me and fish. I'm not a squeamish man, but if there's one thing I can't stand, is cleaning fish. But we haven't caught any fish yet. Yeah, wait a minute. I've got it. Hey, Bertie. Oh, Bertie. Yes, Mr. Gilfrey. Bertie, 
How would you like to go away with us tomorrow for a nice vacation? It's 10.30, and we were going to start at 8 o'clock. Come on, come on, come on. We're coming, Uncle Mort. Well, then what's holding us up? We're just packing the lunch. For goodness sake, we just finished breakfast. Now, you'd be the first to holler, Mr. Gilsleeve, if there wasn't any lunch. We'll be done as soon as we finish these deviled eggs. Yeah, I don't know why it is every time we go anyplace, all the women in the house have to start deviling eggs. Have you got the thermos bottle? Yes. Have you got the steamer rug? Yes, yes. <sighs> oh, Uncle Mort, why don't you just leave the packing to us? We can do it much quicker if you'll just let us alone. Well, we're just trying to help, for heaven's sake. Of course, if I'm not wanted here, far be it from me. Why don't you go get the car out? Yeah, a man tries to offer his services around here, and he gets his head taken off. Come on, Leroy. Hey, Uncle, can I back the car out? No, you may not. Why not, Uncle Mort? Piggy Banks backed his car out. I can do it either. You heard me. I said no. Well, why not? I've told you before, young man, you're too young. You're much too young to understand about cars. Oh. Now, get off the running board. I'm going to start it up. Yeah. Have you been fooling with this car, young man? No, sir. But may I make a suggestion? No, you may not. What is it? <laughs> Why don't you turn on the ignition? Turn on the... <laughs> yeah. It's a funny thing. I've been trying to start it that way for years. It's never worked yet. <laughs> Yangway! What are you trying to do, Throckmorton? Run over me? No, Judge, but it's a nice idea. <laughs> That's gratitude. An old friend comes over to say goodbye to you, and you try to run him down. Here's a lunch basket, Miss Gill, please. Uh, oh, Leroy, uh, while you're resting, uh, go get that, will you? I'll open the trunk. Uh, one side, please, Judge. Leroy, what's all this in here? That's my root beer. Well, get it out of there. We've got to have room for the baggage. We can't take all this. Well, gee, can I take some of it? You can take six bottles. That's all we'll have room for. That's all you'll have room for, too. Okay. The idea. I've never seen it. Good morning, Judge Hooker. Good morning, Marjorie. Well, it looks as if you had a fine day for a trip. Looks like a scorcher, if you ask me. I'm dying already. Yeah, it is a little hot. It's a lucky thing it's not far to hack attack. I don't like the looks of that left rear tire there. Oh, I wouldn't worry about that. It's still got a lot of fabric left. It's still got a... <laughs> Leroy, come get these bags, will you? Uh, yes, Leroy, while you're resting. Seems like I have to do all the work around here. <laughs> By the way, Throckmorton, I'll be glad to sort of keep an eye on the house for you while you're away. Oh, the house is locked, Judge. I don't think there's anything to keep an eye on, really. Well, you can't tell. A couple of houses have been broken into around here lately, you know. Is that so? I hadn't heard about that. Yes, so if you'd like to leave your key with me, I'll be glad to drop around once in a while and see that everything's all right. Well, that's mighty nice of you, Judge, mighty nice of you. Here, there's the front door key. Thank you. Leroy, have you got those bags in back there? Yes, everything's in. Uh, Bertie, suppose you and Leroy are right in the back. Marjorie, you sit up here in front with me, huh? Now, are we all set? Everything in? Have we forgotten anything? Let's see. Doors locked, lights out, bags in. Leroy, did you? Yes, Uncle. Good. Well, we're off. <laughs> Goodbye, Judge. Bye, Rocky. Hope 
Don't feel like tax If we don't, you'll hear from us. Bye, Marjorie. Leroy. Goodbye, Joe. Say goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Good old hooker. You know, this whole trip was really his idea, Marjorie. He's a sweet old thing, really. Yeah, he's a sweet old thing. I'm going to miss the sweet old goat. <laughs> well, ought to be a nice trip. Hey, Unc, what was that? Sounded like a blowout. I knew it. It's that left rear tire. Hey, there goes another. Oh, there goes our trip. Can you beat it? You work hard all year. You save your money. You mind your business. You try to take a well-earned vacation. Oh, no. <laughs> That's four of them. Oh, the spare. How do you like that? You get out, Leroy. I'm afraid to look. I've seen some bad breaks in my time, but I'll be a... I mean, I'm, I'm a patient man, but good gracious to Betsy. Well, that's life, I guess. Bertie, did you ever change a tire? Hey, Alf, what do you think? Don't tell me. Let me guess. Leroy, this is no time for joking. I'm not joking. They're okay. Leroy, I distinctly heard something blow. So did I. I'll tell you what blew. It was Leroy's root beer. That's what blew. <laughs> I told him he put too much yeast in that stuff. Root beer. Oh, this is going to be one of my bad The great Gildersleeve will be with us again in a few seconds. Everybody knows that fresh vegetables are good for you. But do you know the trick that makes practically any vegetable dish a real taste treat? Well, the answer is, serve hot vegetables with smooth cheese sauce poured over them. You'll make them even better tasting, even more nutritious, too. It's easy if you use Pap-Fet, the delicious golden cheese food that comes in a handy round flat package. All you do is melt Pap-Fet... In a double boiler, stir in a little milk and season. Presto, you have a grand, smooth cheese sauce, not only for vegetables, but for fish and chicken dishes, macaroni, rarebits, any number of foods. You'd be surprised how a luscious golden cheese sauce, the kind Pabst Et makes so easily, adds sparkle to everyday dishes. Gives them appetizing variety that just calls for second helping. Yes, and Pabst Et spreads so smoothly... Slices so neatly, you'll find a hundred delightful ways to serve Pabstet, both by itself and to add cheese goodness to other foods. It pays to serve Pabstet often because it's so nourishing, a fine energy food, rich in milk protein, and it gives you vitamins A as well as the milk minerals calcium and phosphorus. So ask your grocer for Pabstet tomorrow. Remember, Pabstet, the delicious golden cheese food of a hundred uses. get back to the great guild of sleep. It seems that left rear tire held out. For as the morning mists roll across Lake Hackmatack, we find the mighty angler seated in the stern of a little rowboat with his niece in the bow and his nephew at the oars. Steady, Leroy. Steady as she goes. Leroy! 
That went right in my lap. I can't help it. It's these darn oars. Yeah. It's about far enough, I think, Leroy. Yeah, let her coast. That's it. Now hand me that rod. Rod, Marge. Oh, here, Uncle, you want a worm? Forget the worms. A true sportsman, Leroy, would rather die than use a worm. Well, then how do you catch the fish? Ah, uh, you see. Uh, young man, you're about to be initiated into the gentle art of fly casting. You see that little doohickey there that covers the hook? You mean that tassel? It's not a tassel, young man. That's the fly. You see, it's very delicate. The finest ones are so delicate, they're made of hummingbird feathers. Do the fairies make them, Uncle Moore? Oh, shut up. <laughs> There's a lot of angles with this young man, so watch carefully and don't be so smart. I'm watching. Now, this is how your true angler tempts the finny tribe. It's all done with the wrist, see? And the secret is in getting the rhythm. One, you cast it. Two, you jerk it back. You see? One, two. One, two. One, two. One, two. One. It's all done with the wrist, you see? One... You've been saying that for three days now, Unc. When do you catch the fish? The fish are secondary, young man. The sport is the thing. One, two, one, two, one, two, one. you think there are any fish in this lake? I've seen them. Where? In Judge Hooker's dining room. Oh, then, then what are we doing here? Judge Hooker has a stuffed trout over his sideboard that long. And by George, I'm not leaving here till I catch something. Can you beat it? Five days, not a single bite. Not even from a mosquito. Not one. Remember, Uncle Mort, the sport is the thing. The fish are secondary. Yeah. Give me those worms. I've tried dry flies, wet flies. I've tried casting, trolling... If this doesn't work, so help me. I'll go in after him with a club. Hey, Unc, look, look down there. What? Where? Down in the weeds there. Huh? See him? Ooh, and a fat one, too. <laughs> be quiet, everybody. Be very quiet now. <gasps> if I can just lower the hook down there without scaring him. Easy. Hey, don't move. What's that, a mosquito? It's an airplane. Well, keep it quiet. <laughs> Remember now, fish are jittery. Easy now. Nice fishy. Come and bite the little worm. That plane's coming this way, Hunk. Go away, plane. He's diving. It's a power dive. Look at that crazy clown. Oh, the crazy fool. Look out, everybody. Duck. Oh, he's down. He's waving. Hi, Doug. Hi. Sit down, Marjorie. Hi. None of your jokes now, young man. You come out of there. I'm okay, Uncle. This is no time to guard. <laughs> Everybody all right? That's right, Marjorie. You grab hold of the boat. Oh. <coughs> yes. Leroy, you grab hold of me. Yeah. I'll grab. 
Hey, look what I grabbed. I got the little son of a gun. I got him barehanded. Oh, he's slippery. Uh, put him down in front of your sweater, Uncle. Yes. <laughs> expect that of a trout. That ain't no trout, Mr. Gillespie. Uh, what do you mean? That trout's a flounder. Don't you talk that way about my trout. Well, whatever it is, it's getting higher than a goat. Why, Marjorie, I don't smell anything. Oh, of course you don't with those cigars. And if you don't stop smoking those things, this fish is going to be kippered before you get them home. <laughs> <laughs> so are we. Uh, no fooling, Mr. Gillespie. Don't you think we ought to stop somewhere and give him a decent burial? <laughs> Nothing doing. That fish is all I got to show for a misspent week. If he bothers you, you can hang him out the window or something. Hey, that's an idea. Hang him on the fishing rod and stick him out back. Here, I'll do it. Now, don't let him get away. What are you expecting to do? Find his way back to Lake Hackmatack? Yeah. yeah, that'll air him out a little. Yeah. Well, what's that guy honking about? All right, brother, come on if you're going to pass. Well, come on. What do you want? You've got a fish. <laughs> I know you've got a fish, you big dodo. I think the man had never seen a fish before. Mr. Gillespie. What is it, Bertie? I ain't sure, Mr. Gillespie, but it looks like there's some seagulls following us. <laughs> oh, fine. Yep, that's what it is. They're after your fish, Uncle. They're after Junior. Step on it, Mr. Gillespie. Yeah, pull in your line, Leroy. Pull in your line. Play him, boy. Play him. I have more trouble with birds. Oh! Go away, birds, go away. Ah, home at last. Come on. Let's get this stuff out of here before it gets any darker. Don't forget that fish. As if we could. Yes. I got the lunch basket. Who's going to carry in all these bags? Thanks. Uh, Leroy, while you're resting, old man. Yeah. Watch your step, Marjorie. It's pretty dark. You? Something more. Are you all right? Something's gravity. Leroy, what did I tell you about those croquet wickets? I thought I'd put them away. I'm gonna. Yeah. Look out for that mole trap there, folks. Gosh, feel that grass. I bet it's grown eight inches since we've been away. Leroy, first thing tomorrow morning. I know, while I'm resting. Yeah. <laughs> hey, somebody left a light on upstairs. Where? In my bathroom. Bertie, has that been burning all the time we've been away? It wasn't me, Miss Gilsey. Well, who was it then? I don't know, Miss Gilsey, but it's in your bathroom. Yeah, well, that's right. Well, come on, bring the bags, folks. <laughs> Boy, it's stuffy in this house. 
Don't forget to put that fish in the icebox, Bertie. The icebox isn't built that could hold that fish. Uh, Miss Gilsey, Miss Gilsey, somebody's been in the kitchen. What do you mean? Tramps or gypsies or somebody. How do you know, Bertie? There's dirty dishes all over the place. Miss Gilsey, you don't think maybe it's been burglars? Burglars? Well, we have to see about this, Bertie. Miss Marjorie, you and me better go count that silver. Huh? What is it? It's your shower, Uncle Mort. Shower? You didn't go off and leave it running. Certainly not. I always turn that lip. What? <gasps> There's somebody in it. There's somebody up there right now. How do you like that for nerve? <laughs> Takes a shower before he robs the joint. Quick, I'll call the police. It's no use, Leroy. The wires are cut. How do you know? They always are. It's the first thing robbers do. Oh, but you can't wait for the police, Uncle Mort. You've got to go up there and get him. You're right, Marjorie. Is who, me? <laughs> I'll guard the back stairs, Mr. Gilsey, and if he comes down that way, I'll party scalp with this meat chopper. Yes, yes, yes you do that, Bertie, but uh, do it quietly. And you go up the front stairs. Yes, wait a minute. Maybe we better think this over a little first. A lot of angles to this. Leroy, you stand by. Okay, Uncle, I've got my baseball back. Marjorie, you sneak out and run for the cops. Well, here I go, if nobody stops me. Be careful, Uncle Moore. Yeah, yeah. How? It quit pushing, Leroy. I wish it wasn't so dark. I don't dare turn on a light. I'm a little vulnerable in the light. Well, here I go. Oh, those squeaky stairs. It's probably these $6 shoes. I mustn't get excited. The doctor said I mustn't get excited. I'll bet he'd get excited, though. Well, now that I'm here, I want... Uh-oh. I can see you moving around behind the shower curtain. What do I do now? Remember what the coach used to say, Gildy? Get him below the knees, boy. I wish I'd never broken training. Come on, Gildersleeve, give him what you gave Harvard. 29, 33, 76, hit him! Yeah. Yeah. Let go, Let go, nothing. Help! Police! Police! Gildersleeve. Hooker, what are you doing here? Well, what does it look like I'm doing? I'm taking a shower. Any objections? Yes. What are you doing in my house? Well, the painters were working on mine, so I thought I'd just move over here for a few days. I didn't think you'd mind. Matter of fact, I didn't expect you back so soon. I'll bet you didn't. Hooker, you knew you were going to move in here the minute you got me out of town. That's why you suggested that trip. Why, Throckmorton, I'm hurt that you'd say a thing like that. Come clean, Hooker. You just had a bath. You knew it all the time. Well, I... <laughs> had to have the house painted. You know that. It was a disgrace. Yeah. I can't stand the smell of paint. Gives me colic. You wouldn't want me to go... No, I wouldn't want you to have colic. Anything I have is yours, Judge. You know that. Move in any time. Make yourself at home. Wreck the joint. There's one little thing, Judgey, about Lake Hackmatack. Lovely spot. Yes, lovely. But there's no trout there. You know it. Now, there you're wrong, Throckmorton. You just didn't try the right place. Don't tell me. I combed that lake from one end to the other. Well, no wonder. You should have tried the place where I got mine. Where was that? At the Hackmatack Souvenir Shop.
Well, Judge, let's let bygones be bygones, huh? Let's be friends. You mean that, Throckmorton? You mean you forgive me? Certainly, I mean it. There's my hand on it. Guilty, my friend. I take back everything I've ever said about you. Uh, seems to me this calls for a little drink, huh, Judge? Bertie, bring the judge a bottle of that special root beer. You may think you've tasted root beer, Judge, but you're going to get an awful bang out of this. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> by Billy Mills. This is Ben Alexander speaking for the makers of Pat Steps and inviting you to tune in again next week at the same time for the further adventures of the great Gildersleeve. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. You know, that was the great Gildersleeve, 1942. A little different from my show, but, you know, from time to time, I will do old-time radio because you got to know about the past to understand the future, and I hope you enjoyed that as well as the interview with uh, Claire Schultz, the author of the book about the great Gildersleeve. And I'm going to do, I know some of you like now saying, Greg, you're not doing your, anything about any politics tonight, no black history, no issues about race, no music, no slow jams. No, I like to change it up sometimes, just change it up a little. And I hope you enjoy, you know, the variety we have on here on the Root and Root Show, because it's about, this tonight is about the roots of radio, roots of entertainment, actually. You know, so we're going to do another show right now, and this is on, this one is very popular. This is Suspense, and I'm going to do a show from 19, let's see, October the 8th, 1954. This is Suspense. The name of this one is The Shelter, and this will... Suspense was a very scary show. Some of you might, you know, say, oh, no, it's not scary compared to, you know, The Walking Dead or something like that. But you use your imagination. You have to use your imagination. Like the show we just did, The Great Gildersleeve, they weren't at a lake. They didn't go anywhere. These are actors that are on a stage reading a script in front of an audience with an orchestra behind them and with sound effects and all that. And that's all they're doing. And this show is the same thing. They're just reading a script but you think you're in this place that they're going to. So let's hear the shelter from the show Suspense on the Root and Root Show. And now, tonight's presentation of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Tonight, the story of several hours spent by two people in a deserted bus shelter and the slow realization by one that the other is quite mad. So now with Joyce McCluskey as the woman and Vic Perrin as the man, here is tonight's suspense play, The Shelter. This is where I turn off. Now, if I remember right, the bus stop is just around that next bend. That's right. Yeah, there's a shelter there, isn't there? Yes. Yeah. There we are, then. Sure you don't mind walking when it's this dark? Oh, it's quite all right. 
I'm grateful to you for having brought me this far. Oh, it was a pleasure. Well, good night and thank you. Uh, just a minute. An important you never know what these things are going to be. It has just been reported by the authorities at the county mental hospital that one of their patients has escaped. Motorists are warned to be on the lookout for would-be hitchhikers and to report any to the highway patrol. How about that? This person may be dangerous. A description of the escapee will be broadcast as soon as it's available. And now, back to our music brought to you at this hour by... Say, that's bad. Maybe I'd better not leave you here on your own. I'm afraid you'll have to. You're in a hurry, and I do want to catch the midnight bus. If you're sure you'll be all right. The bus won't be long. Well, I'll just walk along to the shelter and then stay there, out of sight. Well, now, if you're sure... Thank you once again. Well, it's quite all right. Good night, then. Good night. I watched his car turn off onto a side road and fade into the night. Then I walked ahead, towards the bus stop. It was farther to the shelter than I thought. A car passed me, slowed and then stopped a hundred yards or so ahead. I could hear a door slam as someone got out. Then the car turned around and came back past me. I suppose its headlights dazzled me. For a moment I could see nothing but pitch blackness. Then I saw the shelter like a cave in the dark mountain of trees behind. The light was out. Still, the shelter was inviting. A way to get out of the night. So I went in to wait for the bus. It was unbelievably dark in there, like walking into a fold of black velvet. I could see nothing at all. Hello. (gasps) Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. I'm waiting for a friend. Oh, it's quite all right. I didn't mean to frighten you. It's all right. There's a seat here, a bench along the wall. Thank you, I know. You know? I've been here before, waiting for a bus. Oh, I see. You can find the bench all right? Yes, thank you. Oh, yes, you're sitting down now, at the other end. You must have extremely good eyes. Yes. Yes, I suppose so. You've become accustomed to the dark after a while. Yes. Do you know about the eyes? They say that the way to see objects at night is to avoid looking directly at them. That's very interesting. They say that the human eye is made up of things called rods and cones, although I can never remember which is which. The rods, or the cones, whichever it is, are in the middle. You use them for looking at things in an ordinary light. The rods are on the outside, and you sort of look sideways with them at objects at night. I'm not boring you. No, no. I'm interested in facts, are you? Well, I... I get them from the digest, you know. It's a great place for facts. I expect so. Practically all I read. And what's the use of reading if you can't talk about it, eh? Well, I agree. Where I've been staying, they all read the same thing. You can't tell them any facts they don't know. I like to talk. But when you start, they say, we know. And of course they do. They think you're mad or something. That's very discouraging. Yes. Especially when you're an old chatterbox like I am. Are you a good listener? I think so. That's good. Because as I say, they wouldn't listen to me. You've gotten up. Well, yes. Where are you going? Nowhere. Then why did you get up? The 
see, is a little hard. I thought perhaps you were going outside to walk around. Well, as a matter of fact, I thought I might. Then my conversation does bore you. No. I think you'd better stay here in any case. What do you mean, I'd better? Because it's not safe out there. Not safe? No. What do you mean? You don't know? It was on the radio? What was? Then you didn't know. Well, no. About the lunatic? Lunatic? One of the inmates from the asylum up on the hill. You mean one of the patients from the hospital? That is perhaps a kinder way of putting it. But just the same, they might be dangerous. So you'd better stay here, with me, where it's safe. What did the radio say? I didn't listen too closely, just that there'd been this escape. But we shall be all right here in the shelter. That's right. Sit down again. What was I saying before? That you were interested in facts. I expect you smoke. No, I don't. Oh. I was wishing I could offer you a cigarette, but I don't smoke myself. (gasps) What was that? It's the branch of a tree tapping on the roof. It happens every once in a while when the wind shifts. Oh? Yes. I've read some interesting facts about drinking in the digest. People become addicts, yet the solution is quite simple. They should invent another habit to counter the bad one. That sounds like a good idea. I have all sorts of useful habits which make up for my having no vices. Counting things is one of them. You understand what I mean by counting things? Well... Not exactly. You take wood block flooring, for example. How many blocks would you say there were in a floor 40 feet by 15? Never mind working it out. I can give you the answer at once. It's 1,470. Fancy. In the same room, there are 10 iron bedsteads with rails, top and bottom. If there's a knob at the end of each rail, how many knobs altogether? No. Don't try to answer. In this room, three of the beds have a knob missing. So the answer is 37. That's exact knowledge. Counting things is the only way of coming to exact knowledge, you know. Mathematics will let you down every time. Well, I was never very good at math. Approximation, that's all it is. This fellow Einstein knows that. Yes, I've read all about Einstein and the others in the Digest. They're theorists, of course. Yes? I'm a practical man myself, and I believe in counting things. Did you walk to the door and back again? You couldn't see me? I could hear your voice come and go, and I thought I saw your shadow at the door. I wasn't sure. I knew you couldn't possibly have heard me walking. How? I took my shoes off. They squeak. Oh? Also, it isn't natural for human beings to wear shoes. Perhaps it isn't. When you wear shoes, you bang down on your heel too much all the time. This jars the brain. As a matter of fact, there's a lot to be said for not walking upright at all. (laughs) Oh, there's that tree branch again. It squeezes your entrails altogether. It's better to walk on all fours like animals do, so the internal organs hang freely inside the natural protective cage formed by the ribs. I read an article where it said that most of man's ailments... His voice went on in the darkness. And as it went on somehow, even uneasy as I was, I stopped listening to him. I could hear another voice out of the path. Years ago, it was a loud voice, and I could overhear it from outside the window. It was talking about me. Didn't you notice? She just walked out on me. 
What's the matter with that child? Surely she's not afraid of me. I don't know. Perhaps she is. But that's ridiculous, Martha. I was just talking. Now, what was there to be afraid of? Well, what were you talking about? I don't know. Nothing much. You know the way you talk to kids. Yes. Well, then she got up and walked out. She looked scared. Well, perhaps she's abnormally timid. I've noticed it before. When the Parkinsons were here, she used to go missing for hours at a time. I just couldn't find her. Well, they were strangers to her, but she knows me, for heaven's sakes. I always thought I was her favorite uncle when she was a baby. You remember? She certainly wasn't afraid of me then. I sometimes think her father's death affected her. Oh? Well, this strangeness about her seems to have started shortly after the accident. For goodness sakes, Martha, it's been two years. But she's only 12. She'll grow out of this strangeness. Well, I sure hope so. Say, what are you whispering for? Was I? Well, yes, and you still are. Well, I'll tell you, Will. I get the feeling when she goes missing the way she does that she hangs around, listening to conversation. I have the feeling she's listening to us now. You do? Yes. Well, where then? Outside the window. I'll take a look. No, Will, don't be a fool. That's the worst thing you could possibly do. I got away, as always. Although Mother always seemed to know when I was around or near. Just as I always knew when she'd gone out, even though the house was so big you couldn't hear the closing of a distant door. And it's true what Uncle Will said. I was afraid. I was scared of his voice talking on and on. It was the same with all men's voices except my father. And of course he was dead. Then in the shelter, all these years later, I was listening to another voice talking on and on. Only this time it seemed I couldn't get away. Where would I run to? Out in the dark highway? And if I did get up and flee into the night, how did I know he wouldn't follow me, overtake me? Now, these are known facts. And sitting down is bad, too. One should recline in a tilted forward position. I try to do it whenever possible. Though I have to admit, I'm finding it very difficult on these hard wooden seats. Yes. I should think so. Perhaps you think me eccentric. Your ideas seem very sensible. They're facts. <gasps> That's... Oh. I startled you. Yes. I was sitting at the other end of the seat. It didn't seem sociable. I forgot for the moment that you can't see anything. I must have startled you. you. You're touching me. Well, so I am. Take your hands off me. Well, I was only trying... Go away! Go away! Be quiet. Be quiet, you little fool. I said be quiet. Be quiet. You are listening to The Shelter, tonight's presentation in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Gunsmoke, CBS Radio's thrilling stories of the Western frontier, is now heard twice on Saturdays. There's a daytime edition of Gunsmoke on most of these same stations, in addition to the regular evening show. Both heard Saturdays at the Star's Address. 
This Saturday, every Saturday, hear two stories of Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, on Gunsmoke. And now, we bring back to our Hollywood soundstage, Joyce McCluskey and Vic Perrin, in tonight's production of The Shelter, a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Then I heard the tree branch tapping on the roof. The stranger was gripping my upper arm so tight it hurt and bruised me. I, I'm sorry I had to do that. To slap you. But you screamed. Why did you scream? I, I was... You're not afraid of me, are you? I... Because there's no need to be, you know. I had to slap you because you screamed. You were hysterical. Your scream might have attracted attention. If we stay here quietly, we shall be safe. It's so dark, no one would notice this place unless they actually knew it was here. I suppose not. The lunatic might be a homicidal maniac. Did you thought of that? He's probably just a sick man. Then why did he escape? It must be terrible to be confined against your will. Perhaps you can't imagine what it would be like. On the contrary, perhaps I can. What do you mean? Surely everyone has been hospitalized at some time or another. I'm no exception. Then... I've had my share. Just being hospitalized, that's not the same. What's the difference? You're cut off from the world against your will? Not necessarily. Not necessarily against your will. You think some people actually like to be cut off? That's possible, isn't it? Oh, yes. I was just a little surprised that you should understand that feeling. Fear. Nameless fear. Does it have to be fear? Why not just plain choice? It's usually fear of one kind or another, renouncing the world. That is an eerie sound. I don't mind. But you do mind me. Is that it? I didn't say so. You showed you were afraid of me just now. I don't know why I screamed like that so stupid. Just the same. I think I'd better go. Go? Yes. Now, put my shoes on. I believe you would prefer to be alone. So I'll leave you here. Good night. I didn't mean... Are you there? I didn't mean to be rude. Are you still there? doorway of the shelter. My eyes were more used to the darkness now. I could see the gray strip of highway stretching away in both directions. And across the road, the black tracery of trees. There was no sign of him. I stood there just inside the doorway, listening. But there was nothing to hear but the sounds of the night. And it was funny. Everything had changed. 
Before, I'd welcomed the thought of the friendly loneliness of the shelter, but now I didn't want to be alone. My nerves were jumping with every sound. I couldn't think of anything to do but retreat to the furthest corner in the darkness and try to shut out all the thoughts of the present. And after a while, I did sort of forget, sitting there in the silence. The past came crowding back to my mind. But my terror wouldn't leave me, and all I could hear in my thoughts was the sound of my own scream. Ah! Oh, no! No, no, you can't make me! All right, Martha, I've got her. You'll oh, hurt her, Will. No. You're guilty, Mira. Oh, yes. Oh, you can't make me stay! Martha! You think I should call him now, Will? It's up to you. But I have to be right. I can't do this to her unless What she... else can you do? What are you planning, you two? Now, Martha... Now that she's quieter. I should blame myself for the rest of my life if we were wrong. Let go of me! There's nothing to blame yourself for, Martha. That couldn't be helped. Stop calling now. The sound of the trees rattling against the roof brought me back to the present. Back to the loneliness of the dark shelter. And now I was thoroughly scared. My companion of the darkness had gone. But I had an overwhelming feeling he was still out there in the night. Watching. Waiting. But as I sat huddled in my corner, listening for the slightest sound of him, I heard something else. The bus was coming. Well, now at last I could get away. I went out to the edge of the highway to signal for it. Seemed to be going so fast. I waved my arms there with a blinding glare of headlights. Stop! Stop! Please! Stop! Oh, please! Stop! Well, why don't you go? You were there. I was never far away. But you... Why don't you go? It's waiting for you. I... I don't know. I, I can't go. It won't wait. It's too late now. You would prefer to wait here with me, wouldn't you? Come inside. No. My friend will be here soon. Your friend? I told you I was waiting for him. Oh. Yes. He'll be giving me a lift into town. We can take you. I can't go. Perhaps you believe there is no such person as my friend? Why did he leave you here? He'll be back soon and we can go into town. Or do you want to go back to where you came from? I think... I'd better. Come back into the shelter. No. Come on. Don't touch me. Why are you suddenly afraid again? I don't know. Come inside and wait. That's the way. Oh! What was that? Tripped on something. Give it to me. It's a stick. A walking stick. Give it to me, please. A white walking stick. It's yours. Yes. Then you're... Blind. Yes. I'm blind. Blind? I... 
I don't understand. You said you read all those things in the digest. It's true. I read them in Braille. I'm afraid I frightened you. I only wanted to help. Oh, it's strange. For the first time, I can remember I was afraid of being alone. Scared of the dark. It's normal to be scared of the dark. I just didn't want to depress you by thinking of my own affliction. But now that you know about it, you realize that we both know what suffering is, what it is to be alone, what it is to be shut up away from the world, because we don't really belong there. You mustn't say that. Why should you think you don't belong? I don't think that. I did once, at first, during the months in the hospital, but not anymore. And you? I have to go back. I must confess to you, my friend went to the hospital. He should be here any minute. We guessed when my friend saw you walking on the highway. And you kept me here in the shelter while he went to get a doctor? That's right. I must go back. There. As soon as they come for me. But will you have to stay? Will you want to put it that way? What? No. No, I don't think I will. Then the outside world, meeting people, this is not something to be afraid of? Not anymore. I'm glad. Listen. What? I hear my friend coming. Suspense, in which Joyce McCluskey starred as the woman and Vic Perrin as the man. Next week, the story of a man who sets out to prove that he cannot be murdered, only to find there was a slight error in his calculations. We call it The Last Letter of Dr. Bronson. That's next week on Suspense. Suspense is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, with music composed by Lucian Morrowick and conducted by Lud Gluskin. The Shelter was specially written for Suspense by Don Yarrow. Featured in the cast were Helen Klebe, Herb Ellis, Dick Ryan, and Frank Gerstle. You enjoy City Hospital every Saturday in the daytime on the CBS Radio Network.
It had entertainers. This one in particular features uh, Lena Horne and also Joe Lewis, who was heavyweight champion back then. He was in the Army at the time. So let's hear a little bit of Jubilee on the Root and Root show. A presentation of the Special Service Division of the War Department of the United States to the fighting men of the United Nations. On six continents, the armed forces of 31 nations are united in a single common cause. Most of us are new to each other in the lands we are in. We have asked our men from the United States to get to know you and your country better. We would like you to know something more about ours. This series of broadcasts, like many others you will hear, is dedicated to that purpose. And now it's time for the show, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce your master of ceremonies for this broadcast. We in this country have seen him on the screen and as little Joe in the stage smash Cabin in the Sky. Here he is, Dooley Wilson. You're not supposed to applaud yourself. Mr. Announcer, I'm not applauding myself. I'm applauding because I know what's coming, just like everyone else will, when they hear Lena Horn, Les Height and his orchestra, the Golden Gate Quartet, Wonderful Smith, and Sergeant Joseph Lewis Barr, sometimes known as Joe Lewis, heavyweight champion of the world. See what I mean? But first, unbutton your coat. Take off your gloves and prepare your skin. And get ready to jump, because it's sizzling time. And Les Hyde sends you with spruce
Gate Quartet, professors of higher strata of strategize, put you under their spell as they spell Kalamazoo. A. B. C. D. E. F. G. H. I got a gal in Kalamazoo. Microphone, be it in front of the camera, on the stage, or in a broadcasting studio. The legits as well as the cats in the know curl up into their never, never land. So get ready to curl. For here she is singing, The One I Love Belongs to Somebody Else. Somebody else He sings his sweet refrain To somebody else Even when he's got his arms Around me I know his thoughts are strong For somebody else The hands I hold belong Somebody else I bet they're not so cold To somebody else Gee, it's tough to be Alone on the shelf But worse to be enough by yourself When the one you love Wants someone else The one I love Somebody else He sings his sweet refrain To someone else Yes, even when he's got his arms around me He's looking at the door Waiting for someone I know he's waiting for somebody else To hang I hold belong to somebody else. I bet they're not so cool to somebody else. 
alone on the shelf, but worse to be enough by yourself when, when you love, belong to somebody Attention, all you bugs. Come on up, you small ones, and come on down, you tall ones. There comes that stick man. When he waves it, you shake it. Ready or not, you'll be caught as Les Height and his officer plays three bones.
There's nothing so good for setting you down when you've been stirred up too high by jive as a good spirit. The Golden Gate Quartet are back again with Blind Batima, a modern spiritual in an old tradition. Well, old Blind Barnabas stood on the way. Blind Barnabas stood on the way. Well, old Blind Barnabas stood on the way. Crying, oh, Lord, have mercy on me. Well, old Blind Barnabas stood on the way. Blind Barnabas stood on the way. Well, old Blind Barnabas stood on the way. Crying, oh, Lord, have mercy on me. In my Lord's Bible and the book of James, Christ was the healing the cripple and lame, giving the poor and needy bread, healing the sick and raising the dead. They tell me when he passed through Galilee, he passed by a man who could not see. The man was blind and crippled from birth, and they tell me that his name was Blind Barnabas, but old Blind Barnabas stood on the way. Blind Barnabas stood on the way. Well, old Blind Barnabas stood on the way, grand old Lord. When Barnabas heard that my Lord was nigh, he fell on his knees and began to cry, crying, Oh, thou man of Galilee, what God Almighty have mercy on me, crying, Oh, Lord, there is baby, oh, Lord, it's son of David, my Lord, in land of the Lord, there is baby, oh, Lord, there is baby, oh, Lord, there is little bitty baby, oh, Son of a man, then my God stopped and looked around, saw fine Barnabas on the ground. He touched his eyes with the palm of his hands, and Barnabas saw like a natural man. Well, old blind Barnabas stood on the way, blind Barnabas stood on the way. Well, old blind Barnabas stood on the way, grand old Lord, have mercy on me. I'd like to answer some questions. And the boys out there would like to know the answer. For example, do you like being in the army? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, well, was it tough making the change from uh, civilian life to the army life? No. No. Well, 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 do you miss the big crowd and the excitement that surrounded uh, you every time you stepped into the ring? Mm-mm. Uh-uh. And that was Joe Lewis, along with Lena Horne, Dooley Wilson, the Golden Gate Quartet, and many, many others from the show Jubilee that was played for the troops back in World War II. It, just, it wasn't on radio until years later, so only Armed Forces Radio would hear that. And it was basically geared to African-American troops, but everyone, everyone heard it, but 
as you can see, it was mostly African-American cast and excellent show. And I just hope you enjoyed this edition of the Root and Root Show. I want to thank again Claire Schultz for being on to talk about the Great Gildersleeve in his book, tuning in to the Great Gildersleeve uh, on McFarland Press. And just hope you enjoyed it. We'll do old-time radio, as you've heard from time to time. But tomorrow we'll be doing the music of Fannie Lou Hamer, the great legendary, the one and only civil rights and human rights activist. And we'll have uh, Mark uh, Poirier on here tomorrow. He's a Smithsonian Institute cu uh, curator. And we'll be talking about Fannie Lou Hamer, which I love to talk about all the time. So hope you enjoy the show. And if you're interested in joining us family and got suggestions, you can go to the my Facebook site, Greg, G-R-E-G, -E last name Rashid, R-A-S-H-E-E-D. You can go on Twitter, hashtag Unifix, U-N-I-F as in Frank, I-C-S, hashtag Unifix. So you can go to the blogtalkradio.com site, look for The Root and Root Show, and leave your comments, suggestions, uh, topics for shows, because a lot of these topics are based on listeners like yourself. So I just want to thank everyone out there. Again, this is Greg Rashid, host of The Root and Root Show. I want to say go in love and go in peace, and we'll see you next time. Take care. Thank you.